So I've been asked a lot of hypothetical questions lately. Would you rather be eaten by a shark or freeze to death? Would you rather be able to snap blueberries into existence, <laughs> presumably they just appear in my other hand each time I snap, maybe, or shoot spaghetti out of my fingertips like Spider-Man? Would you rather save your own dog, save two friends' dogs, or save three strangers' dogs from a burning building? And lastly, and a little less recently, would you rather live in blissful ignorance or enlightened misery? Welcome to the Impactivism Podcast, where we explore how each of us, as individuals, can get better at doing good. I'm your host, Logan Sullivan, and this is episode number 13. These are all very challenging questions to answer. I think each for their own reasons and in their own ways. Though I think I have a pretty strong argument for the right answer to those first three questions. For this particular episode, I am most interested in the last one. Which sounds worse, blissful ignorance or enlightened misery? But do stick around to the end of this episode, and I promise to attempt to give you what I hope are convincing arguments for answers to those first three questions. But as for that last one, I was asked that question on the first day of a philosophy class in college and assigned a one-page essay defending my answer. I'll be honest, I hated that question. Because, for one, I was convinced it was a false dichotomy that these two weren't, these weren't the only two alternatives, and even if they were achievable in actuality, there was a spectrum that we could fall on somewhere between, and there would be no circumstance in life when we had to make this choice, but in philosophy class, that didn't matter. It made, <laughs> as angry as it made me, <laughs> it also made me think, and it made me think a lot. And if I remember right... The f I dedicated the first paragraph to addressing why <laughs> this is a stupid question. And I tried to find this essay. I don't have it in any old emails or on a hard drive anywhere, but I really wanted to read off the first paragraph, <laughs> but I couldn't quite find it. And then after that, once I got that out of the way, I went on to very fervently defend miserable enlightenment. And in the concluding paragraph, I elaborated on the first paragraph, you know, saying that with with authentic understanding or, you know, enlightenment, meaning trying to understand all things and have all the wisdom and all the knowledge, you know, with that understanding must eventually follow an acceptance of what cannot be changed. And also with that, the, 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 I don't know, the bliss, if you can call it that, of understanding well what can be changed. And then 
of course, having all this knowledge and information, you can go about changing it. And I can't imagine that ever being close to miserable. Well, maybe not blissful, but I, I'd hope closer on the spectrum towards happiness than to, you know, sadness. And I was later told that in philosophy, there are no stupid questions. Nor are there st stupid answers, but there are rational, logical answers, and there are irrational, illogical ones too. And I was also told that the purpose of that particular question was not practical in the sense of, you know, helping us think through a choice that we'll eventually have to make in life as if these choices existed, but more a question of the value of knowledge and understanding, you know, the value of truth and of seeking a more accurate model of how the world works. And so if this were day one of my philosophy class and I had a couple questions to throw out there right at the beginning, just as everybody's sitting down, Maybe I'd ask this. I'd say, why don't people trust in reason? Why don't some people believe in science? Is Maybe I'd throw this out there too. Is there such thing as not believing in math? <laughs> and if there is, what exactly leads one down the path to becoming a mathematical disbeliever or skeptic? that I think too much or that I'm being too rational and I guess maybe my rational mind thinking too much about it I just don't understand that statement or why it is framed to be a negative thing I guess I'm told this when maybe most often in one of two circumstances has arisen you know first a loving caring friend, <laughs> well-meaning, who wants the best for me, they see that I am dispositioned, you know, by a reality that I've become aware of. One that I've chosen not to disregard, one that I've chosen not to rationalize through or deceive myself, you know, in searching for convenience. You know, an idea that I'm trying to come to understand and come to know that is not comfortable, that shows me that maybe they're is a problem that exists in the world and I'm choosing not to disregard it because I want to come to understand it enough that I can figure out how to try to solve it and to me that's a very positive thing if it was going to make me miserable and I knew I was helpless completely to address problems in the world then I would choose to disregard it and feel my way out of it or rationalize through it but I think we're capable of figuring out how to impact most things and the more that I understand about maybe inconvenient things that exist the more I can weigh where I involve myself or what topics I can most have an impact in or what's within my reach or maybe try to encourage other people who do have that reach to to reach out uh, something like that <laughs> or the other circumstance that maybe arose I in trying to solve a problem, I've deemed the energy of thinking this problem through and trying to, to weigh out this equation, I deem it worthwhile when others may not. Or maybe they don't even see it as a problem at all, 
or they find it to be such an insignificant problem it's not even worth thinking about, or that there already exists a good enough answer, so why are you, you know, wasting the time and energy seeking the perfect answer? Or maybe the equation is just too large to be worthwhile when there exists this, uh, you know, convenient way of convincing ourselves that this untried idea or um, maybe intuitive idea might feel like it's good enough. Uh, but I guess, <laughs> you know, if I'm distraught by that or I've, I look like I'm not enjoying myself or I'm unhappy, I promise I'm a very happy person and I, <laughs> if I'm caught up in that, I'm just, I'm doing it for a reason. But science, math, moral philosophy, they're all hard. Sometimes really hard to reckon with and to think through and to try to welcome these problems or conversations, equations into our lives. But the questions we may not realize we're constantly asking ourselves when confronted with new sounding ideas, I think are these. You know, which, which consequences of this particular idea or of this scientific claim or this argument or of solving this equation, which consequences implicate me and which do not and how much effort will my brain be required to expend in the pursuit of discovering uh, this newfound truth or verifying it somehow or solving this equation and also how much energy will be required of my brain in accepting that truth and also when incorporating this truth into my life thereafter and with with all this in mind is the value of this truth, you know, and I guess, and the value of either achieving positive consequences or avoiding negative consequences, is it worth the effort and inconvenience that it requires of us? harder than for others and we all remember that in school growing up that people had their their natural subjects that came to them a bit more easily than others right? calculating equations requires more energy when our minds are unaccustomed to thinking mathematically or also when we're just not interested and energized by that particular subject matter and for some Right? Certain belief systems, traditions, and lifestyles, I think, are more likely to be agitated right, by new ideas or new scientific discoveries. And more generally speaking, I think some existing ways of life stand to likely be maybe more threatened by the acknowledgement and acceptance of newfound truths than others are. When we assign value to upholding the way things have been as inherently virtuous, I think that with that, we necessarily devalue the critical pursuit of truth, right? We'd be, in another way, we'd be willing to pay more for a potentially inaccurate but convenient model of the world, you know, one that allows us to hold on to um, our belief that the way things have been is the best way they should be. You know, we'd pay more for that model than we'd pay for an accurate one that happened to challenge these ways of thinking. And as a means of identity survival and of emotional self-preservation, 
we necessarily resist information that might suggest this way of being, right? That that's always been and always ought to be, you know, might not actually be the best way of being. This is all just to say that accepting truth, accepting science and new ideas, accepting the inconvenient conclusions of an argument after accepting its premises, as long as the argument was a logical one, you know, it is circumstantially more costly for some than it is for others. But I have to ask, aren't there some truths that just ought to be worth seeking at almost any cost to our convenience? I guess for one, is climate change real? And what is causing it? What will be the consequences if we don't act? And how can I minimize them? I feel like that's a question. <laughs> I mean, the, the existence of innumerable species, not to mention eventually as time goes on, potentially our own, you know, could hinge on how some decisions that we're making in the immediate future. We're at a very pivotal time. And I think, you know, of course, every generation and anybody living at any point in time has some reason to believe that there is a level of significance in, in their life and their time and that the whole world is fundamentally changing. But I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that maybe more than ever before that time is right now. And if we don't ask these questions and we avoid them in the same way that we used to when they weren't so consequential... Man, I don't, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? What could become? I don't know. I think if we actually asked ourselves all of those original questions, right, of the value of truth, and if this truth is worth the effort, if we ask these questions consciously, or, you know, maybe even better yet, out loud to ourselves, I think we'd probably have to say yes. There are certain truths that ought to be worth seeking at almost all costs to our convenience and our beliefs and our traditions if it's the case that we do want to minimize suffering and maximize well-being in the world. But unfortunately, it seems that the majority of the time, you know, we're asking these questions subconsciously and our subconscious minds have <laughs> very strong vested interest in preserving energy for what has historically mattered most and when we're raised you know to look out for ourselves and our neighbors and not necessarily our entire globe it's often the case that that's what our mind deems um, to be most important and unless we make the deliberate choice to definitively value truth over blissful ignorance or you know value finding it the most accurate model of the world that we can in order to allow ourselves to analyze what our priorities should be, how we can solve certain problems, how we can impact the world as effectively as we can, instead of seeing a version that suggests to us that we don't have to because everything, you know, is going well, which it may be in our communities, it may be in our neighborhood or family, but on a whole, there are plenty of things that we can address and different realities that exist. But you know, unless we make that deliberate choice, our minds have developed tools for avoiding inconvenient realities, and they can be really good at using them.
of these tools is a little mental imperfection referred to as selective perception. And this term actually encompasses a number of cognitive biases that relate to the way that our expectations or our existing frames of mind affect how we perceive inputs or how we take in information. And as we've discussed a little bit, you know, we seek to perceive in a, in a very natural way, we seek to perceive information in a way that's sort of in line with our existing thoughts and beliefs, right? Or at least in line, uh, or at least they can exist in peace and some harmony without confronting our existing thoughts and beliefs. And we tend to avoid perceiving that which stands to disposition us or taking in that information. And when we want to believe that we are ethical, good people doing ethical, good things in the world, or at the very least, minding our own business and doing no harm, then any piece of information that stands to maybe counter that convenient belief, it tends to be lit up in flashing neon warning lights that we can see from a mile away and very easily avoid. But I think that true science, right, or the, the tried, replicated science that have come to somewhat of an agreement among a scientific community, you know, that seems to be almost by definition incompatible in a lot of ways with selective perception. And I might go so far as to say that science is concocted as a truth seeker's antidote to the poison of selective perception when seeking knowledge and truth and objective understanding. Or maybe the scientific method was just an app installation added to our software of knowledge and understanding. Right? An option for overriding old formulas for truth discovery with a much less fallible one. You know, when we choose to use that app, anyway. And some form of selective perception, often when interpreting data or conclusions in particularly favorable ways, is actually the most common error for which scientific studies are retracted. You know, the scientists seeing the outcomes of an experiment or the data in such a way that gives them you know, interesting findings they were hoping for, whether the types of findings that confirm one of their biases that maybe they're emotionally invested in or a sensational enough finding to gain attention. And this is precisely why we should remain highly skeptical of any single scientific study, right? But our skepticism can then lessen and lessen as the study is replicated and replicated and the conclusions end up the same. Yet, unfortunately, I think there are more incentives to replicate certain types of studies than other types of studies, which is one reason we ought to be more skeptical about certain areas of scientific inquiry um, than others, but that's a much wider conversation and one we might not have room for today. But I think in most cases, scientists are incentivized to prove other scientists wrong, right? If they are, in fact, wrong. And this is all in the pursuit of a more and more refined version of truth approaching absolute, but knowing we'll never quite get there. You know, and I think a more and more accurate model uh, is being sought of how the world works. So in this sense, a conclusion should only be called scientific once it's been replicated enough times and by enough scientists with minimized bias to assure that 
biases are at that stage in the end all but wiped out, right? But if interested more in confirming existing beliefs than seeking accurate truth, especially in you know the internet age that we're in now, there are plenty of sources of information to seek in pursuit of confirming our perceptions no matter what it is we would prefer to believe. No matter how ridiculous, outlandish, or rare an opinion might be, we can definitely find somebody else out there in the world that's written something about it that we could try to cite or use to confirm what it is we want to buy into. You know, and for far-right think tanks that can fund uh, studies, there are plenty out there to try to bring doubt to climate change, to give ammunition to those that are, you know, they have vested interest, I guess in all senses of the term, in uh, human-made climate change being questionable. But if we give enough value to truth in this particular case, right, wanting to understand objectively, is climate change real? And if we forget about all of our preconceptions and anything in our past that might influence us to want to seek one answer or another, and we just try to look at it objectively, right? So if we value that truth, you know, allow it to outweigh the inconveniences that it will maybe imply when we find the answer, then we're forced to look at the other 98% of studies that suggest otherwise, right? Questioning, of course, all of their biases along the way and making sure that these are legitimate, as we should do with all sources of information. So why don't people believe in climate change? I think likely because the threat to some people's belief system and their way of life can be relatively high, which makes the cost and consequences of this particular topic or accepting one truth or version of truth versus another makes that high too. You know, whether that's the cost to one's industry that they work in and in turn their employment stability into the future and maybe that implicates their family and and that's very understandable. And, you know, that also could be the cost of less future profits yielded from investments already made if you're investing in that industry. Or I think what definitely seems to be the most common is a cost to one's identity having associated maybe with a certain in-group and fearing that re-examining the topic will associate them with a currently undesirable out-group. And maybe strong statements were made in the past and people feel an aversion to admitting that they are not 100% right. 100% of the time, and I understand where they're coming from. I I had, in my life, made many strong statements that took me a very long time to admit (laughs) that I I was not correct. So skepticism of human-made climate change, I think, of course, is very readily fed by the existence of so much disinformation, right? Often probably likely coming from others with a similarly high cost associated with exploring and accepting um, this idea. And with climate change, the consequences are so far from implicating, uh, you know, the deniers directly, you know, they're detached in time, you know, as the majority of these, these large threats, the catastrophic ones are not going to arise within most of their lifetimes or are not likely to. And they're also detached, usually geographically, as the evidence, you know, now exists in Vanuatu and in Bangladesh, not in Dallas, in 
clearly not in Washington, D.C. And I think the subconscious mind's valuation of truth here does not exceed its valuation of convenience and preservation of the way things are. When it comes to doing good in the world, right, being aware of our own selective perceptions can really empower us, I think, in a lot of ways. But for the sake of, I think, almost innumerable ways when it comes to how it can help us figure out how to do good and to do some good, take those actions. But for the sake of keeping this episode concise, um, I'll talk about a few important ones here and leave us at that. So first, I think it can really help us to, of course, truly see an accurate model of issues that exist in the world, both seeing what problems exist that are large ones and maybe what problems might not actually exist or might not be as big and massive and consequential as we thought. Also, you know, how large their consequences actually will be and in what time frame. And hopefully based on this more objective understanding, we can try to more objectively prioritize, you know, what are the most important issues uh, to support and which ones we can support ourselves. But I think anybody, of course, would very naturally prefer to find a world that is just, that is fair, and that is a peaceful place. So everything inside that wants to maintain this optimism about humanity and about our planet and the fact that we're living in a world that is a positive thing, you know, or maybe if we just don't want to feel obliged to make changes in our lives, you know, to be more ethical, to be as ethical as we now believe ourselves to be, then these subconscious aversions will stand up and scream at us anytime we see information that opposes this belief. And they'll scream even louder if we somehow bring ourselves to think about purposefully seeking information that helps us understand issues in the world and how to stand up to them. Or maybe it's like, you know, when we're standing at the bookstore deciding between the book about, you know, maybe issues of contemporary racism, contemporary issues of genocide or, uh, you know, corruption uh, happening somewhere, something inconvenient that's not so pleasant. And then we're also looking at the other book that's, you know, the vampire romance novel or something. You know, brains thinking which one, how, I'm estimating the energy is going to take me to read this, right? And we're going to probably choose the vampire one if we're feeling tired or distraught or lacking optimism. Or maybe we do buy it, right? We maybe buy the book about a, a current issue and about how to address it. But then every night that we lay down and we see it sitting there in the nightstand beside the entertaining novel, you know, those aversive voices in our heads protest again. They stand up and they're louder than they were before every single night. But just like anything going on in our heads, when we're aware of it, we can choose to work with it and we can practice overcoming it as it gets easier and easier to deal with in time. So second, being aware of our selective perceptions, I think, can empower us to understand our own empowerment in a way, to see how fortunate we might be and to find a fulfilling gratitude in that realization that can contribute to our own just happiness and joy in life to understand how lucky we are. 
And it will also be a way of seeing our fortune and wealth and position within the world clear enough to recognize the beauty in being able to take advantage of that uh, as a means of creating change, uh, making the world a little bit of a, of a better place. But then again arises our mind's aversion to recognizing this as it, of course, requires energy to accept and energy to act upon, right? But being aware of that can be helpful. And I think third, uh, you know, being aware of our selective perceptions can help us see the common approaches to doing good that might not be as effective as we intuitively believe. And also seeing more clearly, you know, the highly impactful and effective approaches that are well within our reach. So if there's one major practical takeaway from this very philosophical, abstract conversation, um, I hope in episodes to come, I'm going to be delivering a lot more substance, uh, but I wanted to have this discussion as well. So one, I hope, practical takeaway can be, you know, just try to remind yourself as regularly as you can that you would rather, well, I hope, you know, if you're still listening to this episode, I hope this is the case, you would rather construct in your perception a genuine model of how the world actually works. You know, something approaching an accurate model of truth rather than constructing a likely inaccurate model that requires less thought, energy, and action from yourself, right? That would be like a permit to continue living without the complication of discovery and growth and expansion and of making changes that promote other changes to be made, right? I guess our personal changes that allow us to impact positive change or positive shifts in circumstance in the world. And this might help us admit either to ourselves or even better yet out loud, you know, when we were wrong at some point in time. And this can only improve, I think, as a uh, bonus, it can improve our communication skills, improving relationships with family, you know, friends and lovers too. And as a bonus to trying to do good in the world, that's awesome. So just remind yourself that if we really do authentically care about leaving behind a world better off as a result of how having lived our lives, you know, then seeking the most accurate model of how the world works will infinitely empower us in the pursuit of alleviating suffering and increasing well-being, allowing us to improve unknowable numbers of human and non-human animal lives and the health of our planet as a whole. And with this in mind, just remind yourself that the energy and complication of seeking understanding and taking action, that this challenge will be infinitely worth the payout when the payout is a better world. As you've made it to the end of the episode, I guess I, I, I made a promise to answer those first three questions from the beginning of the episode. So would you rather be eaten by a shark or freeze to death? And of course, eaten by a shark. I'd, I'd be able to, I'd die in the ocean, my favorite place to be, 
The shark is hungry, and I would be nourishing the shark instead of just freezing and sitting in a glacier somewhere. And I hate the cold, so that freezing to death would be like long, and that would be the worst way to go. I'd rather... I won't go into details, but there's a lot of ways I'd rather die than freezing to death. The shark is definitely one of them. And it would probably be over pretty quick. It'd probably come up from under me in the shadows, and I'd never know. Uh... There's my answer. I, I, come on, you, you can't argue with that one. I don't think. Second one was, <laughs> would you? I was actually asked this question. Would you rather be able to snap blueberries into existence, or shoot spaghetti out of your fingertips like Spider-Man? And I'll admit that I, I paused, and I was leaning in one direction. And I went the other way. I was originally thinking. No, there's a lot of uses for shooting spaghetti out of your fingertips. That can be a weapon, you know? If nothing else, it can shock somebody <laughs> to freezing. And depending on how fast you can shoot it, you know, that could, you know, maybe do some damage. I don't know. Also, very practical, I could shoot it onto a plate and feed anybody, myself, at any given time. But I can also feed anybody with blueberries, and they are rarer to me to come across fresh and new. Uh, they are, logistically speaking, harder to come across as well. And I just don't, spaghetti's like one of my least favorite common foods. It's just so plain. And I don't know if I'm also shooting like sauce out of my fingertips or not, or just the noodles, but blueberries are all I need. So if I can just snap blueberries into existence, yeah, I'm in for sure, obviously. Last one. Would you save your dog, save two friends' dogs, or save three strangers' dogs from a burning building? And my dog is actually sitting next to me right now, so it's really hard to say. <laughs> of course I'd save three strangers' dogs. You know, I, I think the valuation of the dog's life that's being saved should not have anything to do with the owner, but rather, you know, these three dogs, two dogs, or one dog. And I happen to know my dog and love my dog infinitely. But if I happen to own any of those other three dogs, I'm sure, and my dog should plug his ears, but I'd probably love them just as much too. Um, so that's a hard one to say, but of course. Uh, so there you go. Those are, those are my answers. I went way longer in this episode than I hoped. Uh, that happens quite often. Uh, I'm sticking with the two episodes per week up for the next couple weeks until the end of week eight. I think this is week five, so a few weeks to go. And uh, from there, we'll see uh, what the demand is and if I'll stick with two a week or not. Um, if you like this episode, share it. Uh, check us out on Facebook. Do uh, subscribe on iTunes. The podcast is now up on Stitcher as well after a minor delay and complication there. Uh, but that's up and good on uh, castbox.com. It's been listed as a recommended or top uh, podcast in the uh, society and culture genre, which is awesome. Very exciting. Uh, good things are happening. Uh, there's some potential announcements also coming up related to uh, the podcast as a whole, but nothing for now. Uh, but I will definitely up update you uh, very soon. So 
again, uh, always tell me what I got completely wrong. If something made absolutely no sense, if something made a lot of sense, also reach out and let me know. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, all the links are at logansullivan.com as well. So again, I'll be back every Monday and every Wednesday. Wednesday.